property. We live on it. We buy it. Sell it. Invest in it. This is Propertunity Knox with Jordan Chernotsky. Spencer Schwartz with me today from U Realty. Welcome back to the show, guys. We've been looking forward to having this interview. Spencer, good morning. Yeah, good morning, Jordan. Thanks for inviting me on your show. I must say, I got a call from Chai on Friday afternoon, quite late. It was around 5 o'clock, asking if I'm available on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. to be interviewed. And all I was thinking is, this Sunday? I mean, <laughs> so... I don't know what possessed me to say okay, and I've never spoken on the radio. Well, I'm glad you. I'm glad you were available. So I'm looking forward, and I hope I can share some value and answer your questions. I'm sure you can. Generally speaking, we wouldn't have you on the show if we didn't believe that were to be the case. So, okay. Spence, before we jump into the formalities of our discussion, just uh, give our listeners a little bit of an idea of what you do on a day to day for you, Realty. Okay, so I do, um, I'm involved in sales predominantly, and I do rentals as well. You know, some landlords eventually become sellers, so it's, it's good to have the connection. And I've been in the industry now approaching nine years. That's very long. Almost, I can tell you from my personal experience of about five, six years, that nine years in real estate years probably equates to about 50 years. So I'm very, <laughs> I'm very, uh, I'm very excited to to be speaking with someone with such experience. So let's uh, let's jump straight into things. Um, just so that we have some form of focus, we will, as discussed, be focusing more so on the mortgage side of things, home loans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, obviously, to all our listeners, hope you are peeled in because these are obviously you know topics that are relevant to really anyone looking to purchase a house or you know, looking to get their, their hands dirty in terms of property and whatnot. Without further ado, I suppose, let's start with, you know, mortgages in general. What is the, you know, basic approach to, to begin? Well, what's the starting point for applying for a bond? What would one need in terms of the first steps? Uh, so I would suggest that the first step is actually to find out what you can afford. And I mean, there are lots of online calculators. Urealty as well has one on the website, which allows you to, uh, you know, put in the the, your income the property and amount, the property amount and, yeah. and, and work out actually what's your affordability. Then once you get a, a pre-approval from a bond originator that take your application to all the banks, then you actually should start looking for a property. When you find the right property, you put in the offer to purchase, and then the actual approval, you know, to get your bond grant is a lot simpler by, yes. by choosing that particular journey. Of course, I mean, in, even in my experience, I, I always suggest to clients looking for a home that they should get a pre-approval before, you know, submitting any offers, just to, you know, really avoid any potential setbacks, disappointments, you know, almost time-wasting situations. I think it's definitely advantageous to know exactly what you can afford before trying to purchase it, I suppose. It's almost like going into a store and trying to buy a new TV, but you don't know what's on your card. <laughs> yeah. So uh, in terms just of... Just adding to that. Yes, yes. I mean, it, 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 it lets you know what you can afford 
The pre-approval is usually valid for about uh, three months, and it, it basically lets the estate agent and the seller know that you're a serious buyer. Yes, you've no, gone exactly. to that effort, and you're not tying the the seller's hands for any period of time while you've accepted an offer, and then you only start looking. Yeah, exactly. Because it's normally 14-day uh, process for getting the bond approved. And sometimes, in some cases, there's an automatic extension of 14 days. And after that almost one-month period, you find that there are complications along the way, and uh, you never were going to get that bond approval. Yes, exactly. And then what what sort of bearing would your pre-approval have on the eventual, you know, full bond grant? Because obviously, you know, pre-approvals from my experience using home loan companies and whatnot, they obviously tend to give you a very solid idea of where you stand. But there are instances whereby a person who has been pre-approved will, you know, then apply for the full bond grant and then certain red flags or slight issues may come up. Look, when, when you get a pre-assessment or approval, it's not, it's not always a guarantee because yes. the, the home loan company doesn't submit it to the banks. They do a credit check based on the information that you've given, exactly. that, that you've given to them. But the banks, they've got their own guidelines which can negatively, negatively affect the application. And of you course. could be deemed a high risk. You know, if you don't have credit, if yes. you're under debt review, um, if, if even if you've resolved uh, some of your uh, previous debts, it could still be fresh, and therefore you have to rebuild your your credit score. Yes, of course, and I mean, I often encounter people that don't even know about these red flags that they have in terms of their credit, and you know, often is the case that there are remedies and you know, methods that need to be followed in order to resolve those sorts of things. But I suppose it's, it's again, essential to provide as much accurate information as possible when applying for the pre-approval so that you don't, you know, upset yourself in terms of the actual grant. Because, again, I mean, like you said, it's a little bit less formal when applying for a pre-approval through a home loan agency or a, or a real estate agency because, again, the information you provide is almost as bare minimum as possible, if that makes sense. And I think you can agree with that. I think, look, there are other complications which can, you know, um, be dealt with up front. It, you know, sometimes a buyer is self-employed. It's their own business. Yes, of course. Uh, they're paying their personal expenses through the business. They don't have two years financials drawn up. They're not drawing a salary from the business. And, and, and they would never get a bond. Yeah, and not in their personal capacity. Of course. Two to three months to rectify that situation. Yeah, in which time you could Often easily got, lose a property you were trying to purchase, I suppose. Yes, exactly. Mm. And and sometimes you have a spouse that's earning a salary overseas or they're not a South African citizen. They're still getting residency permits. So it's important, you know, before you put in the offer to purchase and even before you start looking, just to check what your affordability is, is like. Yes, of course. Now, in terms of your affordability and whatnot of course when applying for you know finance and whatnot it's it's incredibly important to maintain or to ensure that your financials are in order but what sort of bearing would the valuation of the property being applied for what sort of bearing would that have on 
the bond application process. Say, for example, and I feel this is all too common the case, municipal valuations in South Africa, well, Johannesburg specifically, tend to be a little bit out of whack. And uh, obviously, it's important that the bank or whoever is providing that home loan sees the value in the property. So what what sort of bearing would the valuation have? Is it important to, you know, keep yourself in line with what the municipalities have valued the property at? Or is it more of a case by case whereby the bank you're applying with for the bond would come through and evaluate the property? Which, uh, you know, which side of the the string is more important, I suppose, to consider? Look, what I would say is a municipal valuation gives you an indication of uh, average sales in an area, in a complex over a period of time. It's not necessarily what a property would sell at. Of course, yes. if a seller accepts uh, an offer and a buyer is prepared to you know, meet that uh, asking price, that's what it's going to sell at. But yes. if in terms of the banks, they need to know that uh, what they investing their money in can be sold at a market-related price down the line. You know, should should an owner default and not be in a position to be able to continue with the with the bond payment? So you know, it's easy though for a bank on a two million rand property with a buyer putting down a substantial um, deposit. Uh, you know, uh, banks should get their money back when the property is sold. So, you know, just in terms of municipal valuation, often they much higher than what the property is worth. Yes. And once a year, um, owners can put in an objection. Sometimes uh, they viewed favorably and other times there's no response even. Yeah, I think more often than not, unfortunately. And I suppose, look, it's a topic for another day, but these incorrect valuations obviously lead to increased rates and increased expenses in terms of maintaining the property. But again, that's that's for another day. So I suppose valuations, pre-approvals, all of these, you know, sort of preclusions or things leading up to the sale are almost as important as anything, if not more. <laughs> but, um, you know, I suppose being in South Africa, another factor to consider is the, you know, intense variability in the market regarding interest rates and just the general property market as a whole. I mean, it seems as though it changes by the day in terms of what properties are worth and you know what the interest rate is. I believe it just went up last week, and I'm sure you know that already. And it's supposed to be going up yeah. again in January. So, I think there's a lot of uh, difficult times along the way for some people. But uh, give us a little bit of insight into how that has played a role in purchasing a home for the people you've dealt with. I mean, I had a case a few weeks ago where client applied for a property, all was in line, everything was great. There was a little bit of logistics to sort out in terms of the actual agreement. And in lieu of having the offer fully signed by all parties, interest rate went up by, I think it was nearly a percent. So that was a prime case of her being victim to this market, I suppose. Yeah. So look, aside from your own uh, or the buyer's financial situation, uh, a significant factor affecting interest rates will be the repo rate. Uh, and that's determined by the South African Reserve Bank. So the repo rate refers to the rate at which the Reserve Bank will lend money to commercial banks. And the repo rate in turn determines the prime lending rate. Um, and, and as you've mentioned, it keeps going up. Um, at, at the moment, we're sitting at 
10.5%. Uh, not long ago, if I say not long ago, uh, July 2020, it was at uh, 7%. Yeah, post-COVID. Um, yes, it was at 7%. Uh, in November 2018, it was 10.25. Mm -hmm. And then it slowly dropped because of, uh, you know, giving, giving buyers more financial uh, affordability. Look, the highest it's ever been, I mean, I'm sure some of your, your listeners will remember, Back in August uh, 1998, it was 25.5%. Mm -hmm. When properties if, were if a couple hundred grand. Now, <laughs> it, it's, I mean, the, the, the record low was 5.5%, and, and that was in 1962. Yes, well, um, that's quite a while back. <laughs> I don't so even think I was a thought yet. I think my dad wasn't yeah, even a thought yeah. yet. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't born either, to give that away. <laughs> no, you're um, only 21, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, so look, other factors that affect the interest rate that a bank is likely to give you is your actual credit score, your credit record. And this can be affected by, you know, your level of debt, how timelessly you pay your bills. And an excellent uh, credit score would give you a lower interest rate. Yes. Um, also, the size of the deposit that you're paying would give you a a lower interest rates and uh, we, we spoke about bond originators uh, that's a, 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 a good way to get a better rate because one application takes takes it to all the banks and you know usually it takes two or three days um, uh, nowadays to, to, to get a bond approval but we spend a longer period of time comparing the rate achieved from one bank to another and then the bond originator going back between the banks to try and get the best rate. So that's also a benefit to, to going pre-approval and putting in one application and not specifically going to your bank direct. Yeah, you'd be surprised. You know, your, bank direct, your bank direct, they've got your business, they'll give you a, a rate. Whereas other, other banks are vying for your your business and they might offer you a much better rate yeah exactly and often is the case i advise my clients is that you'll go to your bank you'll get your percentage you then obviously if you've applied through a home loan company or if you're doing it in your personal capacity it's always worthwhile to take that rate go to a competitive or a competitor show them the rate ask if they can beat it and in the event that they do beat it i suppose then going back to your bank and asking them how another bank who has no business with you is willing to beat their rate you know, it's almost like a, a very, very strong standpoint to, to find yourself in, in terms of negotiating on that rate, I suppose. Yeah, what's a challenge when, when you do go direct to your own bank and the bond originator puts the application to all the other banks, excluding your bank, it does make it a little bit difficult because, you know, the other banks won't want to have the, that information shared outside of that application yeah of course of course those are all factors to account for but i suppose at the end of the day you have to look after yourself first i mean loyalty is obviously important if you are receiving the expected benefit but you know i wouldn't be happy if my bank wasn't offering me the best rate so i suppose yeah. it's important not to just settle and assume that this is the best you're going to get um well i suppose then moving moving on from that we've obviously covered you know general pre-approvals and 
you know, credit checks and obviously property valuations and how that would affect you as a purchaser, as well as the varying market we are currently living in. But I suppose the next factor to discuss would be the general costs of ownership, as well as, you know, perhaps a little bit more insight into the process of securing that bond documentation-wise, timeline-wise. But let's take a short break and get on to that straight after. Property. We live on it. We buy it. Sell it. Invest in it. This is Propertunity Knox with Jordan Chernotsky. Spencer Schwartz with me today on Propertunity Knox. Spencer, thank you again. It's been uh, very interesting discussing things with you thus far, just in terms of the home loan application process, the market at the moment, interest rates, repo rates, really covered quite a bit. But as we were sort of alluding to prior to our short interval, give our listeners somewhat of an insight into the general documentation that would be required from them when applying for a bond. You know, obviously the pre-approval is one thing, but you know, the business end would be obviously attaining the actual bond grant. So what sort of preparation would be required from a prospective purchaser in terms of documentations and other logistics? Look, when, when you apply for a bond, if, if you um, employed, you have a salary slip, uh, really it's only a copy of your ID, uh, three months uh, pay slips and three months uh, bank statements. That's usually sufficient enough documentation to have the application. I mean, if you earn a commission for overtime, so then you might need uh, six months uh, pay slips. Mm -hmm. If you're self-employed, so then there's a lot of uh, company documentations, letter from accountants confirming the income, or as we said earlier, two years financials. You might need management accounts uh, as well as... Uh, the bank, uh, um, the bank statements, etc. Okay, so in terms of documentation, I suppose it's it's not too complicated. Now, you know, obviously, it's one thing prepping and collecting the required documentation, but for our viewers, give us some insight, or our listeners rather. Uh, thank goodness we don't have viewers, or you know, I would probably would be out of a job. But um, give us yeah, a little bit of uh, insight into how one could sort of repair their credit status in the event that the bank statements weren't in line or you perhaps had started a new company or a new job or something of the likes. So look, that, that's really the, the job of um, the bond originator to try and find out how they can resolve the issue. I mean, the uh, banks are willing to to give bonds and, and often they're 100% and there's a sliding scale. S some banks are now for first time property owners. I think it's properties of around 1.8 million and below. They're giving 105% to 109% bonds, which then also allows you to cover some of those costs that you would pay over and above uh, the, 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 the property purchase. You, you mentioned earlier cost of ownership. What we refer to there is there's transfer duty um, over and above the purchase price. They're conveyancing attorney fees. Uh, there are other minor fees in terms of and to have a rates clearance certificate. 
Also with the bond, you've got legal fees and also bank administration fees. So, you know, when, when a seller, when, when a buyer feels their affordability is X and they could buy uh, a property worth X amount, uh, they may not be in line with uh, uh, what the rules and the regulations are. Banks, banks will work on 30% uh, of your gross income to allow you as a, as a bond repayment. And like I mentioned earlier, there are calculators online, which, uh, you know, allows you what's the bond repayment amount, what would your gross salary need to be? Also, they need to make sure that your net surplus income has affordability to, to cover the, the, the monthly expense. And what do I mean by the net surplus? So it's your net income minus your your monthly debt uh, repayments minus your monthly expenses, and that's where you get your net uh, surplus income. So your net income equals your gross income less your salary deductions. Interesting. Interesting. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's quite simple, but I suppose often overlooked by some people. But um, I think, again, it's what you've mentioned regarding the post-agreement or post-bond costs are very important to account for. I mean, it's an unfortunate situation to find yourself in where you've battled and done all, all that need be done in terms of, of attaining finance, only to find out that your legal fees and you know additional costs may come in to, to bite you at the end. So what could be done? I mean, it, it is obviously possible to understand what these costs will be prior to making the purchase or prior to accepting the bond grant. So how would one go about that? You know, I mean, again, it's important to cover your basis, so I suppose, attaining as much information about the process to follow prior to engaging is, is of critical value. I think it's the job of the real estate agent to inform the buyer of the various additional costs, you know, sectional title, uh, you're going to have monthly levies as well, um, which which is a forced uh, expense uh, monthly. And when you own your own home, yes, it's good to to do ongoing maintenance, but often we neglect based on cash flow. But in a sectional title, a block of flats, uh, that's a forced uh, contribution from each owner uh, every month. Yes, of course. In terms of maintaining the complex, it is a little bit. There's a little bit more operating or maintenance expenses when owning a sectional title property as opposed to a freehold. Although, you know, naturally, assuming your freeholds are a lot bigger and more spacious and of high value, it almost ends up being quite similar, or you know, even more when it comes to owning something freestand. But uh, just in case any of our listeners have any direct questions or inquiries regarding our discussion so far you are encouraged to contact us either via our SMS line on 34519 or through Twitter at ChaiFM or even on email at onair at ChaiFM.com. So uh, hoping to hear from a couple of our listeners in the next few minutes, but let's see how we go, I suppose. Spencer, let's change it up a little bit obviously we've focused quite mainly or intensely on the buyer's side of things but now what sort of processes would need to be followed for a seller 
throughout this process towards the end. I mean, assuming the buyer has all of his finance in place, the agreement's been reached, the contracts are signed, the ball's rolling, what role then would the seller have to perform in lieu of selling their property? Okay, so the the agent would meet with the buyer, draft an offer to purchase, get signed by the buyer, present it to the seller. Once the seller has accepted uh, the offer, then on their side, there are compliance uh, requirements, uh, electrical uh, compliance, uh, electric fence compliance, and gas, uh, if applicable. Um, and those are the... Other than the agency fee, which is paid by the seller, those are the only other uh, costs related uh, predominantly by the seller. Okay. So I suppose in terms of the conclusion to the, the sale process, there are certain factors that need to be sorted out on the seller's end, you know, in terms of rates clearance, electrical compliance, all sorts of little documents that seem insignificant but obviously are of utmost importance. Another thing that I'd love to hear a little bit more about you from is bond cancellation. So, for example, you're a seller now, you've got a property you've just sold for five million, your bond is still, let's just say, a million rand. What is then the process to follow in terms of clearing and closing that bond when selling your property? Okay. Thanks for reminding me on that because that's that's fairly... Um, critical at the outset, especially when you're selling a property that uh, the owner is uh, well on in years. They may have taken out a bond many years ago through, it could have been Perm, Trust Bank, Allard, etc., which were taken over by NetBank or APSA, and they may not have microfished that actual uh, title deed or or, and, and they might not even find the, 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 the account. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds crazy, but I've had so many scenarios where, you know, you have to then go and advertise in the newspaper and go, and go that route. So often at, at, at the outset, one could say to the seller, do you know where your title deal, deed is? Which bank was the bond? Because you're going to need to cancel that bond in order for the registration to to go through. Yes, 100%. So then, now let me ask you, if your intention as the seller was to clear your remaining bond post-transfer or post-sale, you know, you're relying on the actual sale of the property to then clear the balance of the bond, what would be the way to go about that? Is that an option or is it a case whereby the seller would have to clear it it before? It it, it needs to be cancelled prior to... Uh, registration taking place. Yes. If if there is a bond that needs to be settled, the conveyancing attorney would then undertake to furnish uh, the bank with the balance of the funds that came in prior to the the registration uh, taking place. So in 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 essence, you could almost give your bond providing bank a almost a guarantee that the balance will be settled based exactly. on the fact that you're selling. Exactly. Okay, interesting. Um, Obviously, guarantees are almost harder to come by than bonds at times, but I mean, I suppose they do come into play quite often. So perhaps you could just give us some brief insight into what a guarantee would be, I suppose, if if you're not going to be using finance. I'm not following exactly what you're saying, but a a guarantee would, 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 would either be 
funds coming from a bank that is holding the funds that needs to be released in, in 32 days or 60 days, the bank would undertake those funds to be transferred to the Conveyancing Attorney's Trust account within the period of time stipulated or when called for. Yes, of course. Okay, well, it's very interesting, I suppose, the different situations a prospective purchaser could find themselves in. Another situation that's becoming very common are subject to sales. Another being actually what we discussed last week would be a rent-to-buy situation, which is a little bit more complicated than a straightforward sale. But I suppose all come into play at one point or another for you know, the various types of buyers in the current market. But um, I suppose, you know, it's important to account for all of these factors and really do your homework when engaging in a sale from either end, you know, be it as the purchaser or as the seller. But uh, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, all of these things seem quite simple, but are often overlooked, I suppose. Just something else that comes to mind, uh, you know, sometimes by no fault of either party, the seller or the buyer, there could be delays once the bond is, is, is approved or granted. And I mean, I know it can be kept open for six months, but delays could be, as an example, a deceased estate and it takes longer to wind up yes. or you're waiting for approved plans, which is, which is part of the stipulation in the offer to purchase. Could be a development, the, the registration, uh, stipulated in the offer to purchase could be not before a certain date. So these are all delays that could take place uh, along the way. Yeah, again, of course, being a, like a subject to situation where the buyer needs to sell in lieu. So perhaps, I mean, again, they, they are becoming all too common, especially in this market where it is proving a little bit more difficult to sell at the number that you'd like. So I suppose... You know, when engaging in a subject to offer, it's very important for the seller to, you know, ensure that they are not liable to lose out on, you know, other prospective purchases in lieu of waiting for the, you know, existing purchaser to sell their their home. So, what sort of uh, it's quite, what sort of coverage? It's, it's or, quite or, simple. Yes, it's quite simple. The subject to we refer to it as a suspensive condition, and the condition is that the buyer is going to sell their property but it's accounted for in the offer to purchase signed by both parties that should the seller uh, get a, a second offer during this uh, suspensive condition period there and there's no conditions on that offer the 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 convincing attorney will put the buyer usually on 48 hours notice to remove the clause of them needing to sell. Yes. Failing which that first offer would be cancelled and the seller can then proceed and uh, accept fully that second offer. So their hands are not tied, but the suspensive condition buyer is at least showing intent. Often you'd want them to to put down a deposit to, to show real intent. And you also want to know that the the buyer is selling their property at a market related 
price. Yes, that they're doing everything you know, they can to... There's a buyer's to... market at the moment. Yeah. It's not favoring sellers um, in, in many areas in, in Johannesburg as such. And therefore, a, a, a buyer is likely to be paying less. I'm talking about the first buyer. He's, he's likely to be paying less than the asking price. The buyer can't then uh, have the best of both worlds and try and sell their property at a much higher price than the market would allow. You, you're buying and selling in, in the same market. Yes, of course. And I suppose it's, it's like two sides of a coin, but, you know, it's important to understand your position as either the buyer or the seller. But uh, let's take a little breather. Property. We live on it. We buy it. Sell it. Invest in it. This is Propertunity Knox with Jordan Chernotsky. Are you a good teacher? Are you truly passionate about helping children learn? Are you willing to volunteer your help? We're going to be starting a homework helpline next year, which is very exciting. And we would absolutely love to hear from you. The homework helpline is not only for children in our community, but for all the children in South Africa who need academic support and help. So to find out a little bit more about that, or to be a part of the world's first, email info at FM. Spencer, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today, just giving us a little bit of your expertise as a property practitioner. And uh, I suppose there's a few more things to chat about before we conclude. And uh, without further ado, I would love it if you could explain to our listeners the difference between purchasing a property in terms of this is obviously married people, right? This is the difference between purchasing in community of property versus purchasing outside of community of property. Could you give us a little bit of insight into the primary differences there? Look, a, a lot of buyers don't realize that the bondholder and the purchaser on the offer to purchase needs to be the same name. So if you married ANC, the property can be in the husband or the wife's name and either party can stand surety. Whereas if, if they married in community of property, then the offer to purchase and the bond needs to reflect both names of the couple. Interesting. So then... What would be the situation then? Obviously, as they say, and I've mentioned this on a prior show, you don't sign these contracts for the marriage. You sign these contracts for the divorce. So <laughs> what would be the protocol to follow in the event that, you know, a couple decided to sell the property under, you know, un unforeseen, maybe unfortunate circumstances, say, by after a divorce or a separation or something of the sorts, in the event that you are obviously married in community and own a property in community, what would then be the, the protocol to follow in terms of selling the property? How would each party then, you know, uh, be so affected I, by that? I, I, uh, Jason, I haven't come across it uh, personally, but as far as what I'm aware is the properties in both names, they get divorced. One, one party wants to buy out the other. It's not a case of just transferring 50% of the property shares to, to the other party that actually needs, I, I believe, transfer duty would need to take place 
on that uh, change and then the other party becomes 100% owner as, a, as, a, as an individual on that uh, title deed. I see. Okay, and then now, again, this is all doom and gloom, so I do apologize, but these situations do come up. In the event that you were married outside of community, let's say, for example, the property is in the wife's name and an ugly divorce happens or something terrible goes down, would there be any you know, provisions in place? I mean, obviously, there would be provisions in place, but what would be the case whereby the agreement was obviously in place in favor of one side or if let's say the property was again in the name of the wife and let's just say the wife's at fault in the divorce for whatever reason she you know happens to mess around with someone else or you know any there's a whole list of potential things what would be the the protocol to follow then if for example the property was in her name so so that would that would come down to you know the divorce agreement and you know regulations would would fall into place I mean, I've had a, a, a situation where one party is the owner of the property and the husband, the bond was in the husband's name and uh, the wife wanted to sell. And unfortunately, the husband didn't agree to cancel the bond and, and therefore uh, the sale couldn't go through. So, hmm. you know, the conveyancing attorney, the, the, the lawyers, they'll, they'll deal with these situations i can't uh, give you all the legality yes of uh, course i suppose it's not a question, it's but, not a position uh, that anyone wants to find themselves in i suppose they normally yeah. end uglier than they it's do not pretty. uncommon i'm sure i'm sure they it, it is catered for yeah. uh, in, in such eventualities it's not uncommon yes it's and, all uh, too common i'm I sure it will be dealt with uh, in 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 an offer to purchase document with specifications uh based on the situation yes yes i see that's it's all very interesting and uh, i suppose again something to account for i mean it's all easy saying yeah no it's all good we can sign it in your name when things are happy but you know these situations do come about very surprisingly and very often and i suppose it's it's just important to cover your bases from a legal standpoint in these sorts of sorts of situations yeah look uh Spence, I just wanted to say as much as I have really enjoyed this conversation, and I think we will need to definitely get you on the show again. And uh, fortunately, that is all we have time for today. So I just wanted to thank you very much again for making yourself available and providing us with a little bit of expertise on the matter. So just thank you very much, Spence. I hope you don't have much planned today and you can go get back into bed and maybe have a late schloff. But uh, uh, thank you so much for your time. Okay, great. It was lovely being on the show. Thank you, Spence. We'll definitely have to have you on again soon. And the next order of business, the Jewish Women's Benevolent Society is having its famous book sale on the 4th of December, that being today, from, well, 52 minutes ago at 9 o'clock until 1 p.m. at the Genesis Shopping Center. So do pull in there. Uh, all your favorite novels and Judaica books, snap them up for about 30 rand each from what I'm being told. So seems like uh, an opportunity there for those avid book lovers. And uh, I suppose a uh, very interesting conversation this morning, one that I would definitely you know, say is of utmost importance being involved in the property market, whether you're a purchaser or a seller. 
And uh, just another thanks again to Spencer Schwartz from U Realty. And uh, I suppose uh, in terms of our content for the day, we're going to have to call it a wrap. This has been Propertunity Knocks with your host, Jordan Chinotsky. Thank you all for tuning in, and we'll see you same time next week. Have an awesome week, and get your goals achieved, and just uh, enjoy. Thanks, guys.